That was great. And I could do a whole riff on that. <laughs> Detachment. Uh, I came at, came at that, came, that idea that struck me with great force by re reading a book by Anthony DeMello, which is heretical in so many different ways. But he had that idea down cold. Um, I forget the name of it now. I read it twice or three times and I can't even remember the name of it. But uh, So I, yeah, I encourage everyone to ponder that, those thoughts about detachment. The, and a lot of my ideas about love, yeah, not, you know, I, I use the phrase uncoerced love. Obviously, that's, that's redundant. Love has to be uncoerced. But part of the uncoercion or lack of coercion is yeah, this refusal to pro, uh, project on people and this refusal to... Uh, to uh, feel like they have to do something somehow to fulfill some need in your life. Uh, anyway, I don't want to go on a riff on that because that'll take up too much of my time. Thank you for this opportunity to speak and interact this weekend. This has been great. Uh, it is uh, great to be in a crowd of people that when I say something, uh, they don't go, so what do you mean by that? <laughs> but more like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I get it, I, I, amen. <laughs> I was in a group this morning, talked with uh, some guys, and uh, they mentioned, you know, uh, mentioned two or three things, and I thought, well, that sounds like stuff I've been writing. Oh, and they've known this for a long time, you know? <laughs> and it was like really refreshing to be in a group of people that kind of were on the same page about a lot of this stuff. So it's been very encouraging, very refreshing. You've been a very affirming. I appreciate that. And I'll go home tonight and become a part of a family and go to work in the office on Monday and then just be another guy, which is probably very good for my soul. But this has been very good for my ego, so thank you. <laughs> As I said, I want to give two examples, uh, specific concrete examples of how I see the culture of religious oppression and control taking shape, incarnating itself in our life. And um, one of those has to do with uh, our desire to create and manage and... Uh, improve the church of Jesus Christ and the other has to do with our desire to flee the church of Jesus Christ um, some of this stuff uh, for those who are regular readers of my column you're going to hear stuff from the column so I'm sorry about that but I've, I've tried to uh, reshape it to some degree place it in the context of the book of Acts and uh, place it in the context of this arc this arc of chaos control chaos and liberation. After the stoning of Stephen, Luke tells us that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Here we see the more, more of the chaotic work of the Spirit. He may not have caused the great persecution, but he certainly made use of it. First, the Spirit uses this seeming setback to further the mission of the church. As Jesus said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. None of the twelve had yet ventured outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now, finally, after seven chapters in the book of Acts, we see the church making its way to Samaria. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Second, the Spirit used the occasion to liberate another deacon, Philip, like Stephen, who had been ordained to take care of the Hellenist widows. One might conclude that if the chief apostles weren't up for the task of going out from Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit would find someone who was, even if he wasn't qualified. 
Up to this point, we have no inkling that Philip can preach, but once he finds himself pushed outside the Jerusalem nest without widows to serve, he naturally would have asked, well, now what? For whatever reason, he thinks he can become a street preacher. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Luke says, and proclaimed to them the Christ. The impact on the city was electrifying. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The timing and the circumstances could not have been better for Philip to remain in that city indefinitely. It was clear that the Spirit had led him to Samaria, that, had, that he had blessed his ministry, that the fields were ripe unto harvest, time to get organized, time to put some programs into place, time to start a megachurch. And yet the next time we run across Philip in the book of Acts, we read this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Luke notes, this is a desert place. Philip is asked to move from a city lush with ministry possibilities, where people with deep spiritual needs were welcoming the work of the church, to go to a desert place where no one lived. Instead of managing a ministry, Philip is being managed, and he seems to accept it as a matter of course. Luke notes, and he arose and went. Such openness to the inefficiency of the spirit is unfortunately not as common as it once was. We live in the most managerial, bureaucratic, organized period of the church's history. We might call it the megachurch era. Megachurches are large religious organizations that depend on sophisticated managerial techniques to keep them running efficiently. Many cathedral churches in late antiquity in the Middle Ages and even today are essentially megachurches. So this isn't a new phenomenon or something that's intrinsically evil. But megachurches have been the exception in the past. The vast, vast majority of churches in the long sweep of Christian history have been smaller congregations. Today, while megachurches still might be numerically in the minority, they have become the epitome of church life, at least in North America. The megachurch sets the pace and the agenda for all churches of, of all sizes today. Today, churches small and medium look to megachurches as models and will buy books and DVDs and attend costly seminars thousands of miles away to learn the management principles of these massive churches. It's not the size nor the effectiveness of megachurches that signals a troubling development to me, but the reliance of churches large and small on managerial thinking as the key to success. Hardly a week uh, goes by at Christianity Today that I don't receive an email that assumes that the answer to the church's problems is better management of people, of programs, of facilities. That people, programs, and facilities need better management I, hardly goes without saying. <laughs> but notice the language used to promote, for example, a recent conference on worship facilities. The event brings together over 3,500 church and industry leaders and over 200 exhibitors from around the world to guide facilities and technology investments and opportunities for houses of worship. This year's events will deliver on the theme, WFX Gets You There, by offering attendees a newly updated conference, dynamic, 
keynote presentations, packed expo floor, networking opportunities, and tours of some of the most successful and innovative churches in the Charlotte area. Designed for decision-making teams from churches of all sizes, the goal is to deliver exceptional learning opportunities and showcase state-of-the-art products and services designed to help churches achieve their ministry goals. Here is an event about how to be a faithful steward of buildings and equipment used in glorifying God, and yet the language is permeated with the language of business and management, technology investments and opportunities, dynamic keynote speakers, packed expo floor, networking opportunities, tours of some of the most successful and innovative churches, designed for decision-making teams, showcase state-of-the-art products and services, achieve ministerial goals. The promotional, managerial language it is used so much, so often, that fewer and fewer Christians even notice how, the, how it affects the fundamental way we think about the church anymore. It's understandable why we're enamored with this approach. It gives us the illusion of control and order. It allows us to manipulate people and institutions so that they perform on cue, so that we can have that successful and innovative church. Those are much easier churches to manage than spirit-filled churches. We can look to the world of business and find thousands of case studies that will show us state-of-the-art techniques to help us solve any particular organizational hurdle that gets in the way of our success. Look to the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, and you might find him managing us and doing things that seem to undermine our ministry goals, like pulling us out of the densely populated area ripe with effective ministry opportunities into a desert where we see no opportunities for ministry whatsoever. Now, let me emphasize, like I'm not, I, you know, I, well, let me just emphasize, I'm not against megachurches any more than I'm against grand cathedral churches. I'm a good Anglican. I love grand cathedral churches. The Holy Spirit has raised up many of these institutions. Worshiping with thousands of other fellow believers is encouraging, inspiring, and in, a, in a remarkable way. And the variety of ministries a megachurch can offer is, is impressive. I mean, we're right up near Willow Creek, and you just can't believe the number of uh, ministries that Willow has to the community that are just changing people's lives, that are really are impacting people with the, the, the message of Jesus Christ. So megachurches aren't the problem. At, but it's megachurch leaders themselves who often are quick to acknowledge that large churches today can create sub-Christian subcultures that infect even smaller congregations and make it difficult, really difficult, for us to listen to the Spirit anymore. The wealthy, Jesus says, can only get into heaven uh, through the eye of a needle. The same applies to churches that are wealthy in numbers and in programs. In a detailed Harvard Institute for Religion research study by Scott Thuma, he explores uh, the many dynamics that are required to create and sustain a megachurch. One of those dynamics is, is that the megachurch easily becomes a religious business or government-like agency. One pastor interviewed said that as his church grew into a megachurch, he found himself, quote, acting more like a mayor or governor than a pastor. The sheer size of a megachurch demands efficiency, and that means an emphasis on bureaucracy, systems, and organization, with a corresponding decline in ministering to people as individuals. Now, 
pastors of large churches object to it when I say it, when I make this phrase, but I think it's just in the nature of large institutions to, to have this in, internal, I don't know what the gyroscope or gravity, I don't know what the metaphor is, to, to, to promote the, the institution's well-being and to justify that as something that meets the needs of individuals. Now, of course, the needs of individuals, they go to these churches because at some level their needs are met, but there's a whole bunch of different reasons why people are going to those churches. Uh, of course, megachurch leaders argue that the systems are in place on behalf of people, but the emphasis on systems uh, is no more or less true of any bureaucracy. And as we all, we all know what it feels like when a bureaucrat tries to convince us that all the paperwork and following the procedures is really in our best interest. Uh, or we are especially surprised, listen, what did I say? Oh yeah, when you get in a Christian organization, you know something's afoot, that something is really wrong when the leaders of that organization say, but we're really a family here, okay? And it's a big organization. I've been in big organizations uh, that are family-like that had to fire people. Well, if it's really a family, you don't fire people. <laughs> but we use the word family to sort of try to get, th to try to, uh, it's a euphemism, to try to get us beyond the bureaucracy, to, to imagine that the bureaucracy can really, purely, in a way, minister to people. And it's always a mixed bag. A staff member of one megachurch talked about uh, the bureaucratic realities. We are a church, but we're also a business that happens to be operated in the name of a church. We are a $10 million a year church that has to operate like a business. Yeah, you do. If you're that large, you do have to operate like a business. Uh, that same pastor felt conflicted about this. He believed he had no choice but to view his church as a religious business, but at the same time he admitted, quote, as the church has gotten so huge, it's harder to make decisions based on an understanding of the Holy Spirit's leading. By the time a spiritual decision gets down to the impl implementation level, it's nothing but a sort of bureaucratic do this and do that. Do this and do that is not merely the lifestyle of megachurches, it has become the lifestyle of megachurches because it is the preferred lifestyle of most North American Christians. And this is a, the other reason I think people go to megachurches. We love megachurches. We feel at home with them. Megachurch members are at home. This is from uh, Thuma's study. Megachurches uh, members are at home in large-scale institutions. They grew up in them. They were nurtured by them. They were probably born in a giant hospital educated in consolidated high school and large public universities, entertained by rock concerts, cable television, and multiplex movie theaters. No doubt they shop in malls and in food warehouses and may commute 30 minutes or more to jobs in large corporations situa situated in office parks. These institutional realities and their practices have shaped both the character and the needs of those people. This is one reason so many of us feel at home in the megachurch. We all have been shaped by the ethos of large institutions where efficiency and effectiveness are the prime values. It's no surprise that those values make their way into our individual and daily lives. It's all part of an ambiance we try to create, an ambiance of efficiency and order and control. We regularly complain about our busy lives, but then this is just so, to me it's just, paradoxical and humorous. We complain about our busy lives, and then we set up systems that ensure that we will live in no other way. 
our spiritual lives are integrated with the rest of our lives in a seeming in a seeming pattern a seemly pattern of efficiency morning prayer becomes a fixed routine that takes no more than 10 minutes we always look for the fastest way to drive from here to there leaving here with just enough time to get there and never enough time to actually pull over and help a stranded motorist because we've got to get to that appointment it is amazing how much that kind of cultural expectation drives us. Whenever I'm with uh, my children or just lots of people, and I, I start to go from uh, point A to point B, and they'll say, you know there's a faster way to get there. Uh, and I'll say, I'm not particularly interested in getting there the fastest way. And it, it's, it's like shock and awe. Why, why, why wouldn't you want to go? The, my, my children and I had this constant debate about the fastest way to get to church. And I go, I just like to go this way, guys. I just really like to go this way. I know it's not the fastest. But that's, it's such a part of our culture, the efficiency thing. That's where I see it a lot. Uh, foods become mere delivery systems of nu- nutrients rather than moments to bask in God's goodness. We spend more time looking at the nutrient chart on the label than thinking about the joy the food might bring us. We want relationships except when the friend becomes needy, at which point we lovingly remind them about the, the danger of uh, codependency. Worship is very important to us, at least up to the 60-minute mark. And then doesn't the pastor understand we've got things to do on Sunday afternoon? So, on it goes. It's really very comical, I think. We say we long for intimacy with God and others, and yet we structure our lives so that this becomes impossible. One might think we're avoiding intimacy, that maybe we really like our finely managed lives just the way they are. Well, I can speak for one person who thinks that and acknowledge that this is true for me more than I like to admit. This makes for a life in which we get a lot done in which we move up in the world, in which we get the most out of life. It is efficient, it's effective, it's managerial, it's businesslike. People who organize themselves like this have a high status in our culture, and many write books and lead seminars telling people how to emulate them. There is a certain satisfaction in managing one's day and one's life like this, a satisfying feeling of accomplishment, of meeting one's goals and objectives. Uh, I'm a, one of my favorite books of all time is not a literary classic, but the book Getting Things Done. That book has revolutionized my, the efficiency of my life. I love it. I preach it. I, I'm, a, I'm a gospel person for that book. But I think we all suspect that something can become dysfunctional in this lifestyle. And, any, uh, and I, as I said, this, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers. I, I think this is just part of the culture we are in, and we can't help but imbibe it in a lot of different ways. Now, there's no question the Spirit can make use of such people, despite their deafness to his leading much of the time. But my question, of course, is how much richer and and even if less efficient would our lives be if, like Philip, we were willing to be carried away by the Spirit, at least from time to time, into a desert place, uh, into into the prospect of inefficiency in the name of the Lord. Uh, As we've noted, after leaving this stunningly fruitful urban ministry uh, Philip ended up in the middle of nowhere and the spirit as the spirit would have it he 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 was more interested in Philip ministering to one exotic foreigner than to hundreds if not thousands of city folk in Samaria Uh, after Philip got into the desert he ran across an Ethiopian court official and was instrumental in his conversion and baptism at that as that episode concludes Luke's notes And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. 
The way Luke puts this has puzzled many a commentator. It sounds like if the spirit physically lifted Philip up and carried him away as an eagle might pick up and carry away its prey. Rationalists among us balk at that and think this must be a euphemism for the spirits leading Philip somewhere, getting a sense of direction. In fact, Luke's not interested in that whole thing. All he's being, uh, all he's trying to drive home is that Philip is in anything but control here, okay? That a sense of decency and order and efficiency is not Philip's highest priority. Living under the dynamic, freeing leadership of the spirit is. In the end, of course, it's not an either or. Uh, God gifts each of us with some measure of organizational intelligence, and he expects us as rational creatures to manage our lives in such a way as they bring glory to him. That means managing not just our emotions and our will, but the details of our day-to-day lives and our churches. We are stewards of some precious and extraordinary things like time and energy and resources. And God, and we know that God longs to tell us at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. But it's not hard to see how quickly stewardship of our time becomes a means to control and order our lives, rather than an opportunity to begin each day asking, Spirit of God, to where will you carry me today? Most likely, it will be to the usual places where we'll meet the usual assortment of people. I had a young staffer in my, in my, uh, when I was working at leadership, and for, he went through this period where every day he'd walk in, I just don't feel the Lord wants me here. I feel like I'm being called to someplace else. I'm not happy here. And he did this about three days in a row. I just don't know where the Lord is leading me. I just wish I could get a sense of his direction. And finally I said, Dave, here's the deal. I know what the Lord wants for you right now. It's very clear to me. He wants you to wake up in the morning and kiss your wife, help your kids get ready for school, get your butt in this office, sit down in this chair, do your very best editing for eight hours a day, and then go home and be a good father and a husband, and then go to church and be a good churchman. That's what God wants you to do. That's his will for your life. Okay? Uh, And I think there's something really true about that. In most days, that's that's the way it is. That's what God wants us to do. Uh, Once in a while, he'll call us to forsake the golden opportunity and send us to the desert. Other times, he'll magically transport us to a place or calling we would never imagine possible. But even when, again, he carries us back to the same office in the same classroom, the same people we meet every day, there will be something magical about it, that our lives are not our own and that the Spirit has given us these people and places to do God's work. Now, I can already, given the questions that have come to me afterwards, I can already anticipate some of them. So let me, I tried to put myself in the place of a, uh, of a pastor, of a church, uh, or of a person who's responsible for an organization. Uh, and think, okay, what does this really mean? What am I talking about? And how would I incarnate this? Because I do believe, as I said, I do believe in decency and order. And I do believe, I, I'm, a, I'm the senior managing editor. I believe managing is a really good thing. <laughs> so what does this actually look like? So I came up with three things. One is, I think it's the standard notion that we have to be uh, open to God's appointments. Uh, Bonhoeffer has a beautiful passage in Life Together in which he talks about being ready uh, to have our schedules, our finely managed schedule, to be interrupted by God. And I encourage you to reread that section uh, when you have the chance. Second, I think it means, where possible, that we should ditch managerial language in in the context of the church. Uh, there's a lot of places where managerial man- language and 
financial language is really important and we should use it and we should not use a biblical euphemism. When we're talking about, um, you know, sometimes churches say, well, uh, we're going to start a new building program and all, uh, it's obvious that the Lord has led, thus, led this uh, building, uh, uh, what do you call the person who manages a, pro- a building project? You call that person a contractor. Thank you. So we hired this contractor. Obviously, the Lord is using him because he uh, he found us this great deal on on, on drywall, and it saved us the church fifty thousand dollars. And and at that time, I go, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think he's just a really good contractor who knows how to save money. I don't think we have to make a euphemism about that. Uh, on the other hand, why do we why do we need to call the church's annual assessment of what is going on in its life the annual report? Doesn't that already set us up for a certain way of thinking about what the church is like? Now it's a report. So it's going to be full of numbers and groups, meetings, and what they were like. Uh, What if we were to name that that thing Church History at St. George's 2010? How would that change how we thought about what happened the previous year? If we said in the context of history, as 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 a, as a looking back at what God has done. What if we were to set it in the context of a spiritual discernment process? Okay? Spiritual discernment, St. George's 2010. What would that make that report now look like and feel like? And what would we talk about? So I think whenever we can take the, the managerial language that we're used to and replace it with something that's much more human and holistic and large and big, I think the church is better off and is more likely to be... Uh, more faithful, I think, to the leading of the Spirit. Um, and then the third thing is... just wrote this down this morning and I can't read my writing. Oh, yeah. Do some ministry. Make sure you're involved in some ministry that is inefficient and organizationally pointless. Okay? Now, we like to... We are self-deceptive people. We say, ah, you know, I really want to have a ministry to young families because I really care about young families and I'm concerned about their burdens that they're bearing. All the while not admitting to ourselves that if I'm really good at ministering to young families, I'm going to have a lot more people coming to my church. Okay, and I'm going to have bigger youth groups and I'm going to look more successful. Uh, And the fact of the matter is the Lord sort of punishes us for our ministry by blessing our ministries in a way that fills us with pride. And so I don't know why he does that, but he just does. So it seems to me it's really important to have some ministry that is the epitome of inefficiency and organizationally useless. Another example is uh, there, are, there are, in coming through the CT offices, there's all these organizations and groups and books and speakers that talk about, we've got to reach young people. We've got to reach people who are illiterate. In other words, we, we need to reach people who, if we do something to them, they will improve. And they will get better, and the world will get better, and everybody will be happier. This is a good thing. I don't have any objection to that. I, I tutor uh, refugee kids with, uh, with my daughter, who runs an organization that does that. One thing you won't see much publicity on that hardly anyone really cares about is doing ministry that has no happy ending, like visiting people in an old folks' home. Nobody gets excited about that. Because all you're doing is visiting people who are just going to go up and die on you. And they're not going to benefit the church at all. They're in a nursing home because they don't have any money. So they're not going to give the church any money. And they're all alone in the nursing home. You're not even going to influence their family because their family doesn't care about them. 
They're just thankful that you're doing it. That's, well, that's what the church is supposed to do. That's great. The church is going to get nothing out of that, and you're going to get nothing out of that. But it's a tremendously inefficient, organizationally worthless ministry that I think God is calling us into. Uh, and, and then the other thing is when we do that sort of inefficient and useless ministry, that we not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. That we don't then brag, our church is so grace-filled that we do ministry that's worthless. And then everyone will look at us and go, wow, this is a church that really follows Jesus. Why don't you just keep it quiet? Just do it and keep it quiet. Those would be three ways in which I think we can be a part of a big managerial institution that has to be managed with technology and all the gifts that come with management and bureaucracy, and yet done in a way that I think still leaves us open to the dynamic and uh, inefficient work of the Spirit. So that's one temptation, uh, and some of the, I think, little ideas about how that liberation can be lived out in that context. So let's go to the other side of the equation. One can get easily fooled about the early church by cherry-picking passages from Acts, like this one. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And the modern pastor goes, I wish... You know, such passages can dazzle us. What faith, what community, what Christ-like behavior. Such passages also elicit a fair number of sermons extolling the glories of the early church, accompanied by chastisements for us to do better. But spending a little more time in Acts is like spending a little more time in a church you've just joined. You soon get over the honeymoon. The first thing we discover is hypocrites. While a number of early believers sold their property and gave all their proceeds to the poor, one notorious couple, Ananias and Sapphira, only looked like they were doing that. Instead, they were keeping a little on the side for themselves. The problem wasn't that they were hoarding. What concerned Peter was their lying. The problem was hypocrisy. And Ananias and Sapphira were pretending to be more generous than they actually were. Besides hypocrisy, there was favoritism. We've already noted this when we talked about the story of Deacon. The fledging church had created a food distribution program, and the Hellenist widows were being marginalized. We also see outright prejudice. Uh, The Hellenist widows were at least a part of the church, but run-of-the-mill Gentiles, that is, those lacking the distinctive mark of God's people, circumcision, well, that was another thing. The early church had the hardest time accepting the simple command of Jesus to be witnesses to the end of the earth. A mission to Gentiles remained unthinkable in the early part of the book of Acts until the Holy Spirit forced the issue, threw Paul to the ground, gave Peter this remarkable vision, had to repeat himself in the vision three times, had to give him an appointment with Cornelius before he finally said, and had him see a miraculous downpouring of the Holy Spirit before Peter said, oh, oh, okay, so it's okay for the Gentiles. Okay. Uh, finally, this, the, despite the stature of Peter and Paul making this case, the rest of the church doesn't buy it. Some men went, were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
This did not set well with Paul and his missionary partner, uh, Barnabas. For Paul notes, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That little phrase, no small dissension, is a euphemism. Of course, it was one bloody church fight at the first council, I'm sure. So amidst the devotions and the signs and wonders and the extraordinary uh, sharing of goods, that we see hypocrisy and favoritism and prejudice and division. And then when the faith spreads to other cities, we see more of the same. In Galatia, we see legalism. In Corinth, jealousy and incest. In Rome, judgmentalism. In Laodicea, lukewarm, lukewarmness. This is not the church of our dreams or a church composed of people who live orderly, moral, or spiritual, or gospel lives. Now, we American Christians come by our church idealism honestly. Europeans uh, arrived on the American wilderness looking for Eden, and as, we, as we've been looking for it ever since. John Winthrop, one of the founding Puritans, framed it in terms of community. In his famous City on the Hill speech, he described the city he and his fellow voyagers were hoping to establish. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work, our community as members of the same body. This lovely vision became clouded within a generation, and Puritan preachers soon lamented the great invisible decay of, uh, decay of, of the power of godliness among many. The lament has been repeated in many, by many an American preacher and writer since. We mock the angry revivalist for his self-righteous condemnation of backslidden believers, but beneath the Jeremiah huddled in the, is huddled in the corner uh, of his breast is a weeping pastor, wounded and weary with the church, that community in which he had put so much hope and had only found so much disappointment. While many wax eloquent about disappointment with God, just as many these days lament their disappointment with the church. At least one major book a year rehashes this lament. In 2007, there was Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity by uh, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. The following year, Washington Post writer Julia Dunn gave us Quitting Church, Why the Faithful Are Fleeing and What to Do About It. The next year, it was Larry Crabb's Real Church, Does It Exist? Can I Find It? This year, it's Gabe Lyons, The Next Christians. Every year brings a fresh batch of these books. Such books often highlight studies that show that when it comes to rates of divorce, premarital sex, political bias, giving, or any number of moral and social issues, Evangelicals, the born-again, conservative Christians, the Orthodox, depending on the survey, fare no better than the rest of America, and sometimes worse. These facts are usually followed by the dismayed author asking sometimes plaintively, sometimes prophetically, why does the church merely mirror the culture? On the heels of righteous indignation comes prescriptions and a pep talk. If the church would only do X, anything from... Uh, imbibing the spiritual disciplines to church discipline to using more hip music, then the church would once again stand out as a city on a hill. 
These studies convince because of personal experience. We enter door after church door hoping to find community where we can, in Winthrop's apt phrase, delight in each other. We bump into time and time again as just a, a building full of people. Some delight in each other, all right, but to the point of excluding us. In other places, Winthrop's words about meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality are but antonyms for what we experience. There is labor and suffering, though not together, but instead laboring suffering against one another. The church, we discover, is nothing but a house of sinners, a great and visible display of the decay of the power of godliness. And so we empathize empathize with many who leave the church and wander into the wilderness of faith all by themselves. Both they and us long for a church, in the words of Crab, that stands out as an alternative community that offers what everybody was created to enjoy, or as his title suggests, a real church, as we define it. I wonder, though, if in our search for a real church we fail to see the actual church that the Holy Spirit has created and with whom the Spirit abides. The yearning to be part of a more spiritual church, a more gospel church, a more devoted church, a more social action church, one free, one free from the drag of religion, is partly a yearning for the perfect Eden, that memory of community we just can't shake. But this righteous longing is often mixed with an unrighteous one, that desire for order and control, like the desire to control the church's reputation. Many assume it's our job to make the church stand out from the culture so that all the world will see that what wonderful people we are and what a wonderful Savior we have and what a wonderful gospel it is. But God often makes himself known not through an impressive display of holiness, but in spite of its lack. Often God makes his true nature known by hiding in the church with all its sins and flaws including its religious sins and flaws, thus covering himself with a cloak of moral mediocrity. As Isaiah put it, truly, you are a God who hides yourself. He is the God who may have revealed himself in the law, but did so only through dark clouds and thick smoke, Moses notes. He may have come to us in Jesus, but he is so disguised in the form of a servant taking on flesh and blood that hardly anybody recognized him. When God comes among us, well, you just can't pick him out of a crowd. Even after the resurrection, what more obvious proof could you want? Some still doubted, the scriptures say. If the church is the body of Christ in the world today, why would we think the world would be able to pick us out of a crowd of other well-meaning organizations? The gospel is a treasure hidden in the field. It is the message given in perplexing parables so that, as Jesus said, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand. The message will forever stupefy the educated who look for it for cogent insights and to the pragmatic who look to it to make a difference in the world. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But Jesus said that weeds would grow up right alongside the wheat so that the church will look just like every other farm field. 
He also said there would be people who would really look devout, people who would pray, Lord, Lord, who would prophesy and cast out demons and do mighty works and yet would not have a stitch of faith. Such is the temptation of those who find themselves saying, with just a bit of pride and self-justification, at least I'm orthodox, at least I'm born again, at least I, I understand grace. For his unfathomable reasons... God chooses to disguise himself when he comes to this planet, and there have been few better disguises than the church. This really frustrates us, and we're so often tempted to bring some order to that moral chaos of the church, and we browbeat each other. The reason the world rejects the Christian faith is our failure of the church to fill in the blank of the thing you're most frustrated about. While we need to admonish one another to faithful obedience, it is often the case that such admonitions are often driven by our embarrassment with the church and our desire to protect God's reputation. To be sure, God transforms his people. A church not witnessing some level of uh, personal transformation might want to do some serious soul-searching. But Jesus also told us to expect a lot of weeds in the church. And he told us not to be anxious about getting rid of them the very thing we're most tempted to do. We want to start pulling weeds and spraying Roundup all over the place. I suspect that Jesus knew that if we started doing that sort of thing, we'd end up killing ourselves. And that brings us to the area, uh, another area that we have to relinquish control of. And if the first is our desire to protect the church's reputation, the second is to protect our own. To be a member of the church of the Holy Spirit, uh, Uh, to be a member of a church that the Holy Spirit has created and currently blesses a weak, confused body of sinners means to realize that I am a weed, not better or worse than the rest of the bunch. This is the path to freedom, releasing the idea that I have to be some paragon of virtue or uh, moral virtue or theological insight to be a real member of the real church. No, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he called us into his fellowship. While we were religious, Christ gave himself to us. While we were theologically insightful, God forgave us. I don't have to pretend that I have it together, that my life is an example of decency and order, that my theology is going to save the church. This is the church. With people like me in it, that Jesus is crazy in love with. This is the church he gave himself for. The church of the Inquisition. The church of the Crusades. The church of the witch trials. The first church of management and efficiency. The first church of judgmentalism and hypocrisy. The Koran burning church of God. That's the name he put, that's the churches he puts his name on. I read a, a press release from the World Evangelical Fellowship yesterday, uh, distancing themselves from the pastor and the church that just burned the Koran. Uh, saying, just, we want to remind all our Muslim friends that we're not like them, they're not like us, we're really Christians, they're really not, more or less was the point of the, point of the, the press release. And here's the deal. What they did was stupid to burn the Koran. It was idiotic. It was unloving. It was uncharitable. It was unchristian in so many ways. It was asinine. That church and its pastor are asses. But they're our asses. Okay? 
They're brother asses and sister asses. Okay? And Jesus puts his name on their church as much as he does on St. George's church. He, is a, he has got no... He's got very bad taste, the Lord. He just doesn't get, he doesn't get it. He's like a father who's been really disappointed in the basketball play of his son and is really embarrassed about the miserable play of his high school team that's just wallowing in last place. But when the next game is announced, he dons the school sweatshirt, dons the school hat, walks in the stands, and cheers wildly for this miserable excuse of a basketball team because it's his son and his basketball team. Carl Bart puts it this way. We must not, because we are fully aware of the eternal opposition between gospel and the church, hold ourselves aloof from the church or break up its solidarity, but rather participating in its responsibility and sharing the guilt of its inevitable failure. We should accept it and cling to it. And speaking of the Christian's stance vis-a-vis the church, he says, the more the church is the church, the Christian stands within it, miserable hesitating, questioning, terrified. But he does stand within the church and not outside it as a spectator. His possibility is the possibility of the church. And the church's impossibility is, is his is also. That's an you know, allusion to the grace, the impossibility of grace. It's, its embarrassment is his, and so too is its tribulation. God calls us into the church, I believe, not because it represents the people of God at their best, but at our worst. He calls us to become embedded in this wretched institution precisely because it is wretched. And he calls us to be a part of it, not to reform it, not to save it, not to control it in any way, but to simply love it. Love is a call to abandon any notion that we're going to change others manipulate their spiritual loves or control their destiny. Love, in fact, will change them, but not in ways we can predict or program. To love with expectations is, in the end, an oppressive, driven, deadly thing, and people know it when they receive it. To love as God loves in freedom with no strings attached is, 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 a, is to grant others a liberating gift. And as we've noted in this, it is this uncoerced love that paradoxically frees us to love and to be transformed. Or as John put it very simply, we love because he first loved us. The, live, the, the, the life of liberation is in the end a life of grace. It's a life freed from the need to control one's life with God and the need to control others' life with God. Living in such liberty is not something that happens overnight, but something we grow into and fail in time and time again. Along the way, we'll corral life until we have things under our control again. And at just such times, God is gracious enough to interject into our lives, sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, of holy chaos. Moments when the spirit of Jesus, mean and wild, discombobulates, disturbs, rattles our safe and secure existence. That's when we have again the opportunity to respond in faith, uh, no matter how unnerving or inefficient the prospect. That's when those who have eyes to see and 
<coughs> excuse me, that's when those who have eyes to see and ears to hear recognize that mere order really is bondage and that chaos is grace. Thank you.